Chapter Fifty of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Fifty. The Sheep Fair. Troy touches his wife's hand. Greenhill was the Nijni Novgorod of South Wessex and the busiest, merriest, noisiest day of the whole statute number was the day of the sheep-fair. This yearly gathering was upon the summit of a hill which retained in good preservation the remains of an ancient earthwork, consisting of a huge rampart and entrenchment of an oval form encircling the top of the hill, though somewhat broken down here and there. To each of the two chief openings on opposite sides a winding road ascended, and the level green space of ten or fifteen acres, enclosed by the bank, was the site of the fair. A few permanent erections dotted the spot, but the majority of visitors patronized canvas alone for resting and feeding under during the time of their sojourn here. Shepherds who attended with their flocks from long distances started from home two or three days, or even a week, before the fair, driving their charges a few miles each day, not more than ten or twelve, and resting them at night in hired fields by the wayside at previously chosen points, where they fed, having fasted since morning. The shepherd of each flock marched behind, a bundle containing his kit for the week strapped upon his shoulders and in his hand his crook, which he used as the staff of his pilgrimage. Several of the sheep would get worn and lame, and occasionally a lambing occurred on the road. To meet these contingencies there was frequently provided to accompany the flocks from the remoter points a pony and wagon, into which the weekly ones were taken for the remainder of the journey. The weathery farms, however, were no such long distance from the hill, and those arrangements were not necessary in their case. But the large united flocks of Bathsheba and Farmer Boldwood formed a valuable and imposing multitude which demanded much attention, and on this account Gabriel, in addition to Boldwood's shepherd and Cain Ball, accompanied them along the way, through the decayed old town of Kingsbere, and upward to the plateau, old George the dog, of course, behind them. When the autumn sun slanted over Greenhill this morning, and lighted the dewy flat upon its crest, Nebulous clouds of dust were to be seen, floating between the pairs of hedges which streaked the wide prospect around in all directions. These gradually converged upon the base of the hill, and the flocks became individually visible, climbing the serpentine ways which led to the top. Thus, in a slow procession, they entered the opening to which the roads tended, multitude after multitude, horned and hornless, blue flocks and red flocks, buff flocks and brown flocks, even green and salmon-tinted flocks, according to the fancy of the colorist and custom of the farm. Men were shouting, dogs were barking, with greatest animation, but the thronging travellers in so long a journey had grown nearly indifferent to such terrors, though they still bleated piteously at the unwontedness of their experiences. A tall shepherd, rising here and there in the midst of them, like a gigantic idol, amid a crowd of prostrate devotees. The great mass of sheep in the fair consisted of South Downs and the old Wessex horned breeds. To the latter class Bathsheba's and Farmer Boldwood's mainly belonged. These filed in about nine o'clock, their vermiculated horns lopping gracefully on either side of their cheeks in geometrically perfect spirals, a small pink-and-white ear nestling under each horn. 
Before and behind came other varieties, perfect leopards as to the full, rich substance of their coats, and only lacking the spots. There were also a few of the Oxfordshire breeds, whose wool was beginning to curl like a child's flaxen hair, though surpassed in this respect by the effeminate Leicesters, which were in turn less curly than the Cotswolds. But the most picturesque by far was the small flock of Exmoors, which chanced to be there this year. Their pied faces and legs, dark and heavy horns, tresses of wool hanging round their swarthy foreheads, quite relieved the monotony of the flocks in that quarter. All these bleating, panting, and weary thousands had entered, and were penned before the morning had far advanced, the dog belonging to each flock being tied to the corner of the pen containing it. Alleys for pedestrians intersected the pens, which soon became crowded with buyers and sellers, from far and near. In another part of the hill an altogether different scene began to force itself upon the eye towards midday. A circular tent, of exceptional newness and size, was in course of erection here. As the day drew on, the flocks began to change hands, lightening the shepherds' responsibilities, and they turned their attention to this tent and inquired of a man at work there, whose soul seemed concentrated on tying a bothering knot in no time, what was going on. "'The Royal Hippodrome performance of Turnpike's Ride to York and the Death of Black Bess,' replied the man promptly, without turning his eyes or leaving off tying. As soon as the tent was completed, the band struck up highly stimulating harmonies, and the announcement was publicly made, Black Bess standing in a conspicuous position on the outside, as a living proof, if proof were wanted, of the truth of the ocular utterances from the stage over which the people were to enter. These were so convinced by such genuine appeals to heart and understanding both, that they soon began to crowd in abundantly among the foremost being visible Jan Coggins and Joseph Poorgrass, who are holiday-keeping here to-day. "'That's the great ruffin pushing me!' screamed a woman in front of Jan, over her shoulder at him, when the rush was at its fiercest. "'How can I help pushing ye when folk behind push me?' said Coggan, in a deprecating tone, turning his head towards the aforesaid folk as far as he could, without turning his body, which was jammed as in a vice. There was a silence, then the drums and trumpets again set forth their echoing notes. The crowd was again ecstasized, and gave another lurch in which Coggan and Poorgrass were again thrust by those behind upon the women in front. "'Oh, the helpless female should be at the mercy of such ruffins!' exclaimed one of the ladies again, as she swayed like a reed shaken by the wind. "'Now,' said Coggan, appealing in an earnest voice to the public at large, as it stood clustered about his shoulder-blades. "'Did you ever hear such an unreasonable woman as that? Upon my carcass, neighbours, if I could only get out of this cheese-ring, the damn women might eat the show for me.' "'Oh, don't lose your temper, Jan,' implored Joseph Poorgrass in a whisper. "'They might get their men to murder us, for I think by the shine in their eyes that they be a sinful form of womankind.' Jan held his tongue, as if he had no objection to be pacified, to please a friend, and they gradually reached the foot of the ladder, poor Grass being flattened like a jumping-jack, and the sixpence, for admission, which he had got ready half an hour earlier, having become so reeking hot in the tight squeeze of his excited hand, that the woman in spangles, brazen rings set with glass diamonds, and with chalked face and shoulders, who took the money of him, hastily dropped it again from a fear that some trick had been played to burn her fingers. 
So they all entered, and the cloth of the tent, to the eyes of an observer on the outside, became bulged into innumerable pimples, such as we observe on a sack of potatoes, caused by the various human heads, backs, and elbows at high pressure within. At the rear of the large tent there were two small dressing tents. One of these, allotted to the male performers, was partitioned into halves by a cloth, and in one of the divisions there was sitting on the grass, pulling on a pair of jack-boots, a young man whom we instantly recognised as Sergeant Troy. Troy's appearance in this position may be briefly accounted for. The brig aboard which he was taken to Budmouth Roads was about to start on a voyage, though somewhat short of hands. Troy read the articles and joined, but before they sailed a boat was dispatched across the bay to Lullwind Cove. As he had half suspected, his clothes were gone. He ultimately worked his passage to the United States, where he made a precarious living in various towns as professor of gymnastics, sword exercise, fencing, and pugilism. A few months were sufficient to give him a distaste for this kind of life. There was a certain animal form of refinement in his nature, and however pleasant a strange condition might be whilst privations were easily warded off, it was disadvantageously coarse when money was short. There was ever present, too, the idea that he could claim a home and its comforts did he but choose to return to England and Weatherbury Farm. Whether Bathsheba thought him dead was a frequent subject of curious conjecture. To England he did return at last, but the fact of drawing nearer to Weatherbury abstracted its fascinations, and his intention to enter his old groove at the place became modified. It was with gloom he considered on landing at Liverpool that, if he were to go home, his reception would be of a kind very unpleasant to contemplate, for what Troy had in the way of emotion was an occasional fitful sentiment which sometimes caused him as much inconvenience as emotion of a strong and healthy kind. Bathsheba was not a woman to be made a fool of, or a woman to suffer in silence, and how could he endure existence with a spirited wife? to whom at first entering he would be beholden for food and lodging. Moreover, it was not at all unlikely that his wife would fail at her farming, if she had not already done so, and he would then become liable for her maintenance. And what a life such a future of poverty with her would be, the spectre of Fanny constantly between them, harrowing his temper and embittering her words. Thus, for reasons touching on distaste, regret, and shame commingled, he put off his return from day to day, and would have decided to put it off altogether if he could have found anywhere else the ready-made establishment which existed for him there. At this time, the July preceding the September in which we find him at Greenhill Fair, he fell in with a travelling circus which was performing in the outskirts of a northern town. Troy introduced himself to the manager by taming a restive horse of the troop hitting a suspended apple with a pistol-bullet, fired from the animal's back when in full gallop, and other feats. For his merits in these, all more or less based upon his experiences as a dragoon guardsman, Troy was taken into the company, and the play of Turpin was prepared with a view to his personation of the chief character. Troy was not greatly elated by the appreciative spirit in which he was undoubtedly treated, but he thought the engagement might afford him a few weeks for consideration. It was thus, carelessly, and without having formed any definite plan for the future, that Troy found himself at Greenhill Fair, with the rest of the company, on this day. And now the mild autumn sun got lower, and in front of the pavilion the following incident had taken place. 
Bathsheba, who was driven to the fair that day by her odd man, Poorgrass, had, like every one else, read or heard the announcement that Mr. Francis, the great cosmopolitan equestrian and rough-rider, would enact the part of Turpin, and she was not yet too old and careworn to be without a little curiosity to see him. This particular show was by far the largest and grandest in the fair, a horde of little shows grouping themselves under its shade like chickens round a hen. The crowd had passed in, and Boldwood, who had been watching all the day for an opportunity of speaking to her, seeing her comparatively isolated, came up to her side. "'I hope the sheep have done well to-day, Mrs. Troy,' he said, nervously. "'Oh, yes, thank you,' said Bathsheba, colour springing up in the centre of her cheeks. "'I was fortunate enough to sell them all just as we got upon the hill, so we hadn't to pen them at all.' "'And now you are entirely at leisure?' "'Yes, except that I have to see one more dealer in two hours' time. Otherwise I should be going home.' He was looking at this large tent and the announcement. "'Have you ever seen the play of Turpin's Ride to York? Turpin was a real man, was he not?' "'Oh, yes, and perfectly true, all of it. Indeed, I think I've heard Jan Coggan say that a relation of his knew Tom King, Turpin's friend, quite well.' Coggan is rather given to strange stories connected with his relations, we must remember. I hope they can all be believed. Yes, yes, we know Coggan. But Turpin is true enough. You have never seen it played, I suppose. Never. I was not allowed to go into these places when I was young. Hark! What's that prancing? How they shout! Black Bess just started off, I suppose. Am I right in supposing you would like to see the performance, Mrs. Troy? Please excuse my mistake, if it is one. But if you would like to, I'll get a seat for you with pleasure. Perceiving that she hesitated, he added, I myself shall not stay to see it. I've seen it before. Now Bathsheba did care a little to see the show, and had only withheld her feet from the ladder because she feared to go in alone. She had been hoping that Oak might appear, whose assistance in such cases was always accepted as an inalienable right, but Oak was nowhere to be seen, and hence it was that she said, "'Then if you will just look in first, to see if there's room, I think I will go in for a minute or two. And so, a short time after this, Bathsheba appeared in the tent, with Boldwood at her elbow, who, taking her to a reserved seat, again withdrew. This feature consisted of one raised bench in a very conspicuous part of the circle, covered with red cloth, and floored with a piece of carpet, and Bathsheba immediately found, to her confusion, that she was a single reserved individual in the tent, the rest of the crowded spectators, one and all, standing on their legs on the border of the arena, where they got twice as good a view of the performance for half the money. Hence, as many eyes were turned upon her, enthroned alone in this place of honour, against a scarlet background, as upon the ponies and clowns who were engaged in preliminary exploits in the centre, Turpin not having yet appeared. Once there Bathsheba was forced to make the best of it and remain. She sat down, spreading her skirts with some dignity over the unoccupied space on each side of her, and giving a new and feminine aspect to the pavilion. In a few minutes she noticed the fat red nape of Coggan's neck among those standing just below her, and Joseph Poorgrass's saintly profile a little further on. The interior was shadowy with a peculiar shade. The strange luminous semi-opacities of fine autumn afternoons and eves intensified into Rembrandt effects the few yellow sunbeams which came through holes and divisions in the canvas, 
and spirted like jets of gold-dust across the dusky blue atmosphere of haze pervading the tent, until they alighted on inner surfaces of cloth opposite, and shone like little lamps suspended there. Troy, on peeping from his dressing-tent through a slit for reconnoitre before entering, saw his unconscious wife on high before him as described, sitting as queen of the tournament. He started back in utter confusion, for although his disguise effectually concealed his personality, he instantly felt that she would be sure to recognize his voice. He had several times during the day thought of the possibility of some Weatherbury person or other appearing and recognizing him, but he had taken the risk carelessly. If they see me, let them, he had said. But here was Bathsheba in her own person, and the reality of the scene was so much intenser than any of his prefiguring that he felt he had not half enough considered the point. She looked so charming and fair that his cool mood about weathery people was changed. He had not expected her to exercise this power over him in the twinkling of an eye. Should he go on and care nothing? He could not bring himself to do that. Beyond a politic wish to remain unknown, there suddenly arose in him now a sense of shame at the possibility that his attractive young wife, who already despised him, should despise him more by discovering him in so mean a condition after so long a time. He actually blushed at the thought, and was vexed beyond measure that his sentiments of dislike towards Weatherbury should have led him to dally about the country in this way. But Troy was never more clever than when absolutely at his wit's end. He hastily thrust aside the curtain dividing his own little dressing-space from that of the manager and proprietor, who now appeared as the individual called Tom King, as far down as his waist, and as the aforesaid respectable manager thence to his toes. "'There's the devil to pay,' said Troy. "'How's that?' "'Why, there's a blackguard creditor in the tent I don't want to see, who'll discover me and nab me as sure as Satan if I open my mouth. What's to be done?' "'You must appear now, I think.' "'I can't. But the play must proceed. Do you give that Turpin has got a bad cold, and can't speak his part, but that he'll perform it just the same without speaking?' The proprietor shook his head. "'Anyhow, play or no play, I won't open my mouth,' said Troy firmly. "'Very well. Let me see.' "'I'll tell you how we'll manage,' said the other, who perhaps felt it would be extremely awkward to offend his leading man just at this time. "'I won't tell them anything about your keeping silence. Go on with the piece, and say nothing, doing what you can by a judicious wink now and then, and a few indomitable nods in the heroic places, you know. They'll never find out that the speeches are omitted.' This seemed feasible enough, for Turpin's speeches were not many or long, the fascination of the piece lying entirely in the action and accordingly the play began, and at the appointed time Black Bess leapt into the grassy circle amid the plaudits of the spectators. At the turnpike scene, where Bess and Turpin were hotly pursued at midnight by the officers, and the half-awake gatekeeper in his tasselled nightcap denies that any horseman has passed, Coggan uttered a broad-chested, "'Well done!' which could be heard all over the fair above the bleeding and Poorgrass smiled delightedly with a nice sense of dramatic contrast between our hero, who coolly leaps the gate, and halting justice in the form of his enemies, who must needs pull up cumbersomely and wait to be let through. At the death of Tom King he could not refrain from seizing Coggan by the hand, and whispering, with tears in his eyes, "'Of course, he's not really shot, Jan, only seemingly.' 
and when the last sad scene came on, and the body of the gallant and faithful Bess had to be carried out on a shutter by twelve volunteers from among the spectators, nothing could restrain poor Grass from lending a hand, exclaiming as he asked Jan to join him, "'Twill be something to tell of at Warren's in future years, Jan, and hand down to her children.' For many a year in Weatherbury, Joseph told, with the air of a man who had had experiences in his time, that he touched with his own hand the huff of Bess as she lay upon the board upon his shoulder. If, as some thinkers hold, immortality consists in being enshrined in others' memories, then did Black Bess become immortal that day, if she never had done so before. Meanwhile Troy had added a few touches to his ordinary make-up for the character, the more effectually to disguise himself, and though he had felt faint qualms on first entering, the metamorphosis effected by judiciously lining his face with a wire rendered him safe from the eyes of Bathsheba and her men. Nevertheless, he was relieved when it was got through. There was a second performance in the evening, and the tent was lighted up. Troy had taken his part very quietly this time venturing to introduce a few speeches on occasion, and was just concluding it when, while standing at the edge of the circle, contiguous to the first row of spectators, he observed within a yard of him the eye of a man darted keenly into his side features. Troy hastily shifted his position, after having recognised in the scrutineer the knavish bailiff Pennyways, his wife's sworn enemy, who still hung about the outskirts of Weatherbury. At first Troy resolved to take no notice and abide by circumstances. That he had been recognised by this man was highly probable, yet there was room for a doubt. Then the great objection he had felt to allowing news of his proximity to precede him to Weatherbury in the event of his return, based on a feeling that knowledge of his present occupation would discredit him still further in his wife's eyes, returned in full force. Moreover, should he resolve not to return at all, a tale of his being alive and being in the neighbourhood would be awkward, and he was anxious to acquire a knowledge of his wife's temporal affairs before deciding which to do. In this dilemma Troy at once went out to reconnoitre. It occurred to him that to find Pennyways and make a friend of him if possible would be a very wise act. He had put on a thick beard borrowed from the establishment, and in this he wandered about the fair field. It was now almost dark, and respectable people were getting their carts and gigs ready to go home. The largest refreshment booth in the fair was provided by an innkeeper from the neighbouring town. This was considered an unexceptionable place for obtaining the necessary food and rest. Host Trencher, as he was jauntily called by the local newspaper, being a substantial man of high repute for catering through all the country round. The tent was divided into first and second-class compartments, and at the end of the first-class division was a yet further enclosure for the most exclusive, fenced off from the body of the tent by a luncheon-bar, behind which the host himself stood bustling about in a white apron and shirt-sleeves, and looking as if he had never lived anywhere but under canvas all his life. In these penetralia were chairs and a table which, on candles being lighted, made quite a cosy and luxurious show, with an urn, plated tea and coffee-pots, china teacups and plum cakes. Troy stood at the entrance to the booth, where a gypsy woman was frying pancakes over a little fire of sticks and selling them at a penny apiece, and looked over the heads of the people within. He could see nothing of Pennyways, but he soon discerned Bathsheba through an opening in the reserved space at the further end. Troy, thereupon retreated, went round the tent into the darkness, and listened. 
He could hear Bathsheba's voice immediately inside the canvas. She was conversing with the man. A warmth overspread his face. Surely she was not so unprincipled as to flirt in a fair. He wondered if, then, she reckoned upon his death as an absolute certainty. To get at the root of the matter, Troy took a penknife from his pocket, and softly made two little cuts crosswise in the cloth, which, by folding back the corners, left a hole the size of a wafer. Close to this he placed his face, withdrawing it again in a moment of surprise, for his eye had been within twelve inches of the top of Bathsheba's head. It was too near to be convenient. He made another hole a little to one side and lower down, in a shaded place beside her chair, from which it was easy and safe to survey her by looking horizontally. Troy took in the scene completely now. She was leaning back, sipping a cup of tea that she held in her hand, and the owner of the male voice was Boldwood, who had apparently just brought the cup to her. Bathsheba, being in a negligent mood, leant so idly against the canvas that it was pressed into the shape of her shoulder, and she was, in fact, as good as in Troy's arms and he was obliged to keep his breast carefully backward, that she might not feel its warmth through the cloth as he gazed in. Troy found unexpected chords of feeling to be stirred again within him, as they had been stirred earlier in the day. She was handsome as ever, and she was his. It was some minutes before he could counteract his sudden wish to go in and claim her. Then he thought how the proud girl who had always looked down upon him, even whilst it was to love him, would hate him on discovering him to be a strolling player. Were he to make himself known, that chapter of his life must at all risks be kept for ever from her and from the weathery people, or his name would be a byword throughout the parish. He would be nicknamed Turpin as long as he lived. Assuredly, before he could claim her, these few past months of his existence must be entirely blotted out. "'Shall I get you another cup of tea before you start, ma'am?' said Farmer Boldwood. "'Thank you,' said Bathsheba. "'But I must be going at once. "'It was great neglect in that man to keep me waiting here till so late. "'I should have gone two hours ago, if it had not been for him. "'I had no idea of coming in here, "'but there's nothing so refreshing as a cup of tea, "'though I should never have got one if you hadn't helped me.' "'Troy scrutinised her cheek as lit by the candles, "'and watched each varying shade thereon, "'and the white shell-like sinuosities of her little ear.' She took out her purse, and was insisting to Boldwood on paying for the tea for herself, when at this moment Pennyways entered the tent. Troy trembled. Here was his scheme for respectability endangered at once. He was about to leave his hole of his spile, attempt to follow Pennyways, and find out if the ex-bailiff had recognised him, when he was arrested by the conversation, and found he was too late. "'Excuse me, ma'am,' said Pennyways. I've some private information for your ear alone. I cannot hear it now, she said coldly. That Bathsheba could not endure this man was evident. In fact, he was continually coming to her with some tale or other, by which he might creep into favour at the expense of persons maligned. I'll write it down, said Pennyways, confidently. He stooped over the table, pulled a leaf from a warped pocket-book, and wrote upon the paper in a round hand. "'Your husband is here. I've seen him. Who's the fool now?' This he folded small and handed towards her. Bathsheba would not read it. She would not even put out her hand to take it. Pennyways then, with a laugh of derision, tossed it into her lap, and, turning away, left her. From the words and actions of Pennyways, Troy, 
though he had not been able to see what the ex-bailiff wrote, had not a moment's doubt that the note referred to him. Nothing that he could think of could be done to check the exposure. "'Curse my luck!' he whispered, and added imprecations which rustled in the gloom like a pestilent wind. Meanwhile, Boldwood said, taking up the note from her lap, "'Don't you wish to read it, Mrs. Troy? If not, I'll destroy it.' "'Oh, well,' said Bathsheba, carelessly, "'perhaps it is unjust not to read it, but I can guess what it is about. He wants me to recommend him, or it is to tell me of some little scandal or other connected with my workpeople. He's always doing that.' Bathsheba held the note in her right hand. Boldwood handed towards her a plate of cut bread and butter, when, in order to take a slice, she put the note into her left hand, where she was still holding the purse, and then allowed her hand to drop beside her, close to the canvas. The moment had come for saving his game, and Troy impulsively felt that he would play the card. For yet another time he looked at the fair hand, and saw the pink finger-tips and the blue veins of the wrist, encircled by a bracelet of coral chippings which she wore. How familiar it all was to him! Then, with a lightning action in which he was such an adept, he noiselessly slipped his hand under the bottom of the tent-cloth, which was far from being pinned tightly down, lifted it a little way, keeping his eye to the hole, snatched the note from her fingers, dropped the canvas, and ran away in the gloom towards the bank and ditch, smiling at the scream of astonishment which burst from her. Troy then slid down on the outside of the rampart, hastened around in the bottom of the entrenchment, to a distance of a hundred yards, ascended again, and crossed boldly in a slow walk towards the front entrance of the tent. His object was now to get the pennyways, and prevent a repetition of the announcement until such time as he should choose. Troy reached the tent door, and standing among the groups there gathered, looked anxiously for pennyways, evidently not wishing to make himself prominent by inquiring for him. One or two men were speaking of the daring attempt that had just been made to rob a young lady by lifting the canvas of the tent beside her. It was supposed that the rogue had imagined a slip of paper which she held in her hand to be a bank-note, for he had seized it, and made off with it, leaving her purse behind. His chagrin and disappointment at discovering its worthlessness would be a good joke, it was said. However, the occurrence seemed to have become known to few, for it had not interrupted a fiddler, who had lately begun playing by the door of the tent, nor the four bowed old men with grim countenances and walking-sticks in hand, who were dancing Major Malley's reel to the tune. Behind these stood Pennyways. Troy glided up to him, beckoned, and whispered a few words, and with a mutual glance of concurrence the two men went into the night together. End of chapter 50